0: thought it was lightning. Alrighty, if you have your Bibles, please open up your Bibles to 1 John chapter 4. If you don't have your Bible, it'll be behind me on the screen. And we're going to start with verse 17. By this is love perfected with us, so that we may have confidence for the day of judgment, because as he is also, we are in the world. wheres Where There is no fear in love, May God bless the reading of his word. So now we come to the end of chapter 4. Um, and so we're not too far off from actually finishing First John. I think it's been a great blessing upon us to be reminded of this commandment, which we're seeing now throughout chapter 4, which is love. Love one another. Um, and it's through love that God has displayed through us to each other and through the world. It's how he is, makes himself known to this world through us. And it's an important encouragement. It's an important command for us to follow because without this love it shows that we don't really understand the love that God has for us. So let's go ahead and continue verse 17. By this is love perfected with us so that we may have confidence for the day of judgment because as he is so also are we in the world. John continues with a brief reflection. By saying at the beginning, by this, at the beginning of the verse, it reflects back onto the previous verse, which focused on the reality of knowing and believing in the love of God that he has for us through his son, Jesus Christ. And how if one abides in that love, it is evidence that one abides in God. It is in this way that the love of God is perfected within us. We notice that we are partakers of this divine love. When we love as Christ loved and abide in the love of God, then this love is being perfected in us as we love. This love, however, does not end with it being perfected in us, but that perfection leads to another significant place, and that is confidence. This confidence is held firm because of the love within us. Yet what is the purpose of this confidence? It is a confidence for the coming day of judgment. This day of judgment is eschatological, end times in nature. It means the end times judgment which is to come. The scriptures are full of evidence of an upcoming judgment day. Ultimately, it is Christ who will bring forth this judgment as the Father has given this judgment over to him. This, then, furthers the reality that there will come a time of judgment. Yet for those who are in Christ, who confess Jesus is the Son of God, There is confidence that they will not experience the judgment which is to come. This brings us to the logical conclusion that if we abide in God and His love, then He is in the world as we are. If we can experience His love in this world despite our failures, then what fear would we have of the judgment to come? Interestingly enough, John answers this question with the very next verse, and this is what he says, There is no fear in love. But perfect love casts out fear, for fear has to do with punishment, and whoever fears has not been perfected in love. Ultimately, there is no fear in love. Now we want to be careful here. The scriptures are clear that fear of the Lord is the beginning of all wisdom, and Christ himself said rather profoundly that we should not fear the one who can destroy the body, but the one who can destroy both the body and soul in hell. Um, This is a righteous fear of God which none of the New Testament writers would disregard. Instead, the fear which is focused on here is the fear of eschatological judgment. Though we were deserving of judgment, and rightly should have a fear of facing that judgment, we are excluded from it because of love. It is because of this, John writes, that perfect love casts out fear. This perfect love represents the love of God, And the way we can know and believe the love of God is through Jesus Christ, who is the Son of God. Thus, we know the perfect love of God through Jesus. And in this way, it casts out all fear, because we know what God has done through Jesus as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. So there is now no fear from judgment because of this perfect love of God through Jesus. John further elaborates on this when he says fear has to do with punishment. This establishes the reality that the fear which John has in mind is punishment, which we deserve for our sins. Yet this fear has been abolished by the love of God through Jesus Christ. This same love which John is calling us into, which he says we are in if we belong to Christ. Yet those who do fear judgment or condemnation For their sins have not been perfected in love. In this, those who still believe that they are going to be judged for their sins have not yet come to the heart, the truth of the gospel of Jesus. That through him, we have no condemnation for our sin. In this way, it is a reminder for us to cling to the truth of the gospel. That if we are saved, we belong to God. And if he bestows his love upon us, As he has through Jesus Christ, then we have nothing to fear concerning judgment for our sins. But now we come to verse 19. We love because he first loved us. So what is the motivation for us to love each other? What is the foundation for us to dwell in this love? For us to partake of this love? To not only attain this love, but to experience this love and share this love? The answer is found in this verse. We love And share in this love because God first loved us. He has shown us his love through Christ. And in doing so, this should cause us to love as well. Verse 20. If anyone says, I love God, and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother, whom he he has seen, cannot love God whom he has not seen. This naturally leads to the implication of love. If the previous verses that we've discussed so far focused on the reality of love being victorious, these verses recognize the reality of when love is not victorious. It also shows the repercussions for those who may claim to be in love, and yet by their actions show that they are not. Therefore, the one who says that they do love God, and yet hates his brother, is a liar. In this way, the individual is claiming a personal relationship with God who is love, and yet living in a way among individuals contrary to the love of God which is given to us through Jesus Christ. To live this kind of lovelessness is evidence that one is not in the truth, but deceives themselves. Such a life is contrary to the call of the Christian, which is to not only accept the love of God, but to abide in the love of God. John then repeats an important point, and that is the invisibility of God. Though we cannot see God, we can surely experience God personally. Yet to claim to love God despite not being able to see him and not loving your brother or sister of the faith whom you can see reveals the reality of the person's heart. Though they may claim to love God, in truth, they do not. Why is this the case? And again, we find out in the next verse, verse 21. And this commandment we have from him, whoever loves God must also love his brother. John closes out the chapter by reminiscing on the command to love. It is a reminder for us that this is not a request, but an imperative. We are commanded to love one another by Jesus. We see it especially spoken in the Gospel of John during the Last Supper. It is there Jesus repeatedly reinforces the command for Christians to love one another. This reminds us that love is not primarily an emotion. Instead, it is an action. It is something which we can do, something which we can show, which we can give toward others. Sometimes we can only perceive love in a romantic way. Yet the truth is the love of God and the love which we are to give to one another is not perceived in this romanticized way. Instead, it is perceived through action, through giving, through sacrifice, through what we learn in First Corinthians 13 especially. Likewise, it is a reminder that those who love God must also love his brother or sister. There has been, through First John, a focus on those who are in the community. Those who belong to the church are the focused recipients of this love from one another. This makes sense when we think about the whole discourse, since the love which they received is particular from God to those in Christ. This kind of love which is being described here is not for everyone, per se, It is specific for those who belong to Christ, fellow believers, who through Christ become children of God. Now this leads us to the main point. The main point of these verses are to establish two realities. The first is the reality for those who confess Jesus is the Son of God and thereby abide in God and in his love and vice versa. They can have assurance, confidence on the day of judgment. Because they already experience the love of God, it allows them to recognize they have no condemnation before God. If they did, then they would not be loved by God. Thus, the love of God through Jesus casts away fear. Likewise, it then leads to the second point, which is that those who claim to love, uh, the claim the love of God or abide in God's love, and yet live loveless lives show they have not attained the perfect love found in Jesus Christ. Thus, those who claim to love God, and yet do not exhibit the love onto one another, especially fellow believers, show that their confession in Jesus as the Son of God is merely a profession, not penetrating into their hearts. This leads us to a few application points. And by the way, so you know how last week I had a really short sermon? This one's going to be a little bit longer. Sorry, top. Anyway. Let's not forget confession, that's the first one. This will be a rather brief point, mainly because it was the main point from last week. That is the necessity of confession, in particular confession in Jesus Christ as the Son of God. Without such a confession, it is impossible for the love of God to be revealed to us as we have seen. So it is that it is this confession which also enables us in regards to what we have learned today. "...concerning the perfection of love being displayed in us and among us, it is our confession in Jesus Christ which allows this perfect love to be made manifest among us. Therefore, it is only through this confession that we are able to escape the coming judgment. Yet, like was said last week, this is not a mere profession." Confession in Jesus Christ as the Son of God is a high confession. It is to confess the single greatest teaching of Jesus Christ, the one which ultimately put him on the cross. Therefore, to have such a confession in Jesus is to acknowledge not only the greatest teaching of Jesus, but to allow the rest of his teachings to fall in line as well. Thus, a confession of Jesus as the Son of God is to confess he is the Messiah. It is to confess his teachings are truth. It is to confess that we are to confess our sins. It is to confess that we must repent of those sins. It is to confess that we are to walk as he walks, live as he lives, and love as he loves. It is with this that we consider then the rest of today's text. This is the backdrop to all of it. This confession of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. This awesome and powerful confession, which we are to maintain and uphold above all else. Because with it comes all the rest. It is from this confession that every piece falls into place. And by it we can know and believe in the love of God for us through His Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Now this leads us to the second point. Why must we love? Jesus gave us the commandment to love. That should be the end of it, right? But it's not ever, is it? This same commandment has been restated over and over again here in 1 John. To love is not a request. It is not as though Jesus or his apostles who continued his teaching asks us to love one another. Instead, it is an imperative. You must love one another. The question is, why? Why should we love one another? Is there a base for us to to understand this love? The answer is yes. The base is Jesus Christ himself, who came to die as a propitiation and atonement for our sins. Here's a question for everybody. You can actually raise your hands if you want to. Who of you were born converted? How many of you were born in a state of repentance and faith when you first came out and were welcomed into the world? How many of you needed to be told, How to lie, cheat, steal, and disobey your parents. How many of you need to be taught that? Alan's like, I I don't know what you're talking about. (laughs) The answer is none of us. All of us needed to learn the opposite. We needed to learn how to tell the truth. How not to steal. How not to cheat. How to obey our parents. How not to sin. Why is this? Because we have all fallen astray, we have all been born, and as we grew up, we began to disobey God. Whether it was through lying, stealing, cheating, disobeying our parents, you name the sin and we've committed it. In the end, we all fell short of the glory of God, every single one of us. It is because of this, when we consider the reality that we have all been dead in our sins since birth, all have been enslaved to the sins that we have, that we wonder about this love of God. Because if you notice, Christ died a long time ago. How many of you have been around for 2,000 years? None of us. Yet Christ died that long ago. Thus the love of God for us is older than we are, because the love of God has been made manifest in Jesus Christ and the sacrifice he made on our behalf. This then is the reason why and the how we are to love one another. Because Jesus Christ died, and through Jesus, God's love is revealed to us even while we were yet sinners. Even though we were deserving of judgment for the very first sin we ever committed, God shows mercy, grace, and love upon us despite our transgressions and saved us through Jesus Christ. Even though we are undeserving of this love, God has given it to us. So the question is, how can we not love our brothers and sisters of the faith? How can we not love others according to the scriptures and maintain this reality that we are loved by God? The obvious answer is that we cannot maintain our love for God or maintain that we are loved by God if we have no evidence of the love of God in our lives given to others. Some may find this to be harsh, but the truth is we have seen it repeatedly here in 1 John. The reality that if our lifestyles are incongruent as a whole with Jesus Christ, then we lose our assurance in our salvation. The same concept was brought up by Jesus. Consider what we read here in Matthew 18. This is going to be a little bit long, but it's good. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. When he began to settle, one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. And since he could not pay, his master ordered him to be sold, with his wife and children and all that he had in payment to be made. So the servant fell on his knees, imploring him, Have patience with me, and I will pay you everything. And out of pity for him, the master of that servant released him and forgave him the debt. So far, everything in this story is perfect. This man owes an incalculable debt to the king. And as we saw while we were going through Matthew a few years back now, this amount would have been trillions of dollars in our own time. The point is that it is so immense that it would be impossible to pay this debt back. The man then pleads for redemption, he pleads for salvation, for forgiveness the king is moved to pity and therefore grants salvation and removes this debt from this man. This is wonderful. Unfortunately, the story continues. But when that same servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii. And seizing him, he began to choke him, saying, Pay what you owe. So his fellow servant fell down and pleaded with him, Have patience with me, and I will pay you. He refused and went and put him in prison until he should pay the debt. Now that is interesting. The man who owed a great amount was forgiven his debt, but then immediately goes and is ungracious, unmerciful, unloving toward his fellow servant who owes a far less debt than his own. Logically, we would consider this unjust. But we're not the only ones. Consider what happens next. When his fellow servants saw what had taken place, they were greatly distressed. And they went and reported to their master all that had taken place. The master finds out about the servant and calls forth calling him a wicked servant, a wicked person. Why was he wicked? Because the master had given the servant grace, mercy, forgiveness, and love. Yet the servant clearly did not bestow the same grace, mercy, forgiveness, and love on others. He had received something wonderful and squandered it by not living as the king did. This is our story in regards to salvation. Each of us "...has an incalculable debt. Our debt is sin. God has forgiven us our debt against him in great love through Jesus Christ his Son. For us then not to bestow the same kindness, the same love, on others would show that we have not begun to understand the great grace of our Lord. This is why Jesus says here, "...those who do not forgive their brother as they have been forgiven will not in the end be forgiven." The same is said earlier, right after Jesus teaches on the Lord's Prayer. He says, For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. So we are to emulate the forgiveness we seek and receive in Christ by giving forgiveness to others. This now comes to what we learned here in today's text. We are told that if we do not love our brother and sisters of the faith, then we do not have the love of God in us. This all ties together. It is a reminder that true forgiveness of sins, true love from God, will lead toward us reflecting that love, that forgiveness into others. If we do not, however, then it shows that we have not experienced this love, this grace, this mercy, or this forgiveness for ourselves. For as we remember... An experience with God will bring forth change. In all of this, we can then have the reason why we must love. We must love because we have first been loved by God. If we have been loved by God, then we will love others because we know how deeply this love of God is for us. His love for us is the foundation. If he can love us despite our failures and our sins, then we should be able to love one another despite our failures, and our sins. This, of course, does not mean that we are not to feel the effect of sin. We will be hurt, and we are allowed to feel hurt and be hurt. That's not the issue. The reminder for us is that though we feel the hurt, we should not forget the reality of the love of God for us first. For every sin we have committed, put Jesus on that cross. If God can forgive us, of the death of his son, of one who is innocent being taken on the guilt of others so that they may live, then we can find peace in our hurt through remembering what Christ has done for each of us, allowing us to forgive and love others in those times of hurt. Our foundation must be here. Any other foundation will sink away before us. Our love for each other must be founded on the love of God for us, otherwise it will all fall away into nothingness. Only God's love, which was displayed through Jesus Christ and given to us through His Spirit, is strong enough to change us to reflect His image in holiness, righteousness, and love. Therefore, the encouragement remains the same for each of us to remember first and foremost what God has done for us. It will not do for us to forget the gospel any second of our lives. For every second we face darkness from within and without. The gospel is the light that penetrates deep into the darkness. And when others see this light, they will glorify God, knowing that only God can penetrate the darkness we face. Once we have remembered this gospel, then we must live according to it. It will not do for us to hear how Uh, hear and know the gospel and not let it transform us into the image of the one who came to die on our behalf. Our assurance depends on us trusting in the light of Christ and clinging to it with both hands, knowing that it is salvation, knowing that it is by which we can be transformed through our justification and sanctification. So heed these things, remember the confession of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, and know that if we truly confess all that it emphasizes we will experience the love of God and the forgiveness of God forever. In this, then, we will be transformed, and by this confession, spread his love and forgiveness to others for the glory of God. Remember that we are vessels, and the worth of a vessel is only that which is inside of the vessel. If we confess all that Jesus Christ is, then all our worth will be full, for we will have God himself in us. His love with us and among us, as we live in this time and place. Have courage, then, to be transformed by this confession of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, and come to the great joys and peace found in a full confession of Jesus. Live in His majesty, knowing that those who live according to the Son of God dwell in the light and the love of God, and will have eternal life. Now this leads us to our third point, a community affair. In today's text, we read in the last verse, and this commandment we have from him, whoever loves God must also love his brother. As we notice, the love which we are to have is specifically geared toward his brother or his sister. I suppose the question we want to ask is, why does John specify? Why doesn't he say love everyone? It is an interesting concept, this love. We are told to love our neighbor as ourselves, And so it often happens that whenever we read that we are to love one another in the New Testament, we automatically equate that loving for everyone. Yet this text is far too explicit. It's too specific. It is specific in love for brothers, for those who are members of the faith. In fact, the majority of times we read of loving one another, whether it is from Jesus or the apostles or the disciples, We find the emphasis on love for one another within the community of believers, not for everybody. Now, does this mean that we are not to love those outside of the congregation? Of course not. It is a reminder, however, that our love for one another is an essential part of our community. It is a reminder that though we are to love our neighbor, we should especially, above all else, love our brothers and sisters of the faith. Further, It is an indispensable part of the Christian individual's life and assurance. It is in a way a rejection of the idea that we are just islands floating along, not connected to anyone. Instead, we are to be involved with the community of believers. This cannot be done if we are not involved here. It cannot be done if we do not participate in worship services and an encouragement to each other. It cannot be done if we are not going to go to church. It cannot be done if we are not actively praying for one another. We simply cannot love each other as God has called us to love if we are not participating in our community of believers. Unfortunately, there are many who believe that they are good, just God in them. Yet, this is not the case. In fact, such an understanding goes directly against the Scripture's teachings of loving one another. Some will say that they are too tired to be involved. They have been hurt too often. And I think we can all sympathize with these things. Many people can be hurt by those who believe that they are loving when they are not and exhausted from the work of community. Yet that does not give us the right to disobey the commandment given to us by Christ to love one another. So let this be an encouragement to us to continue to love one another. When visitors come, That we show them the love we have for each other by loving them as well. That we would show the world this love of God that he has for his children as we love one another. It is not easy to love one another as God has called us to. But it is essential to all of us and necessary. So continue to love much. And know that when we love, we have assurance of the love of God for us. Alrighty, now we come to judgment. Something very significant for us today's text is the reality that those who abide in God and his love have no need to experience fear. This fear is based on the realization that we should be far less afraid of the one who can destroy the body and far more afraid of the one who can destroy both body and soul in hell, as we were talked about earlier. In other words, we want to recognize that there is a judgment to come from a God who is wholly worthy of our fear. Now some might be wondering, alright, how am I supposed to fear God and not fear God? The truth is, in the scriptures, there's a healthy fear of God. We actually read it today in the Psalms, in our opening. God is altogether fathomless. When we think of the universe and its immensity, there are times when we can reflect on how small we are, and it can cause us to have fear of that which is so vast compared to our finiteness. This is similar to... To the fear of God. Because he is far vaster than even the heavens. He is completely other to himself. Completely holy. Completely separate. None are like him. We reflect his image. But none can be God apart from God. Because of this. There is a fear of him which is a sound fear. He is a great God. Whose attributes extend far beyond any of us could ever be. When we consider just how powerful he is. It should cause us to fear that which is altogether greater than we are and different than we are in his greatness. However, despite this healthy fear of God, if we are in Christ, we can have a healthy unfear of God as well. For though we should be fearful of his wrath, if we are in Christ, there is no fear of it. There is no fear of God's judgment on us if we are in Christ, because through Christ we have received the love of God which transcends all of our fears. Though we were deserving of judgment and wrath, God has been gracious to us and given us that which we was undeserved, which was even unlooked for by us through Jesus. So there are two things from this. The first is that those who are outside of Christ should have a fear of God which those who are in Christ do not have. And that is of God's righteous judgment. Those who are outside of Christ do not have the love of God because they love, this love is only given to those who confess Jesus Christ is the Son of God. Because of this they will experience the wrath of God for their sins. They will experience the judgment of God because God does not love them as he loves those who confess Jesus. Therefore, they should fear and have a right to fear the coming judgment of God. Yet, there is hope for those who do fear. And that is that if they do confess Jesus is the Son of God, then they will experience the love of God. And having the love of God, there is no more fear because there is love instead of judgment. Through Christ, we are loved by God as he loves his Son. Jesus takes away the guilt of our sin, and therefore it allows us to be loved by God. Yet it is only through Jesus that such a confession can take place. It is only through the proclamation of the gospel that any transformation for any confession can occur. So we have a responsibility to spread this gospel to show God's love and grace for those who are in Christ. It is here, then, we find great peace. For in Christ, there is a peace without end. In Christ, there is a love that knows no bounds. A love so deep and beautiful, it can transform us from lovers of iniquity to lovers of righteousness. From lovers of darkness to lovers of light. Though many believe we cannot experience change because we are just part of a machine, God says otherwise through Jesus Christ, who brings transformation through his gospel. So be encouraged to be bold concerning the gospel. Let's remember the coming judgment, and when that judgment day comes, remember to have no fear, because for those who are in Christ, there is no longer any fear of judgment. For Christ suffered and died for us to take away our guilt and judgment. Though we are undeserving of such great grace and love, it was accomplished through Jesus Christ to take away all of our sins forevermore for those who confess Jesus Christ is the Son of God. Have hope, peace, and assurance in this confession, knowing that through Jesus we are made children of God. All of this reminds us of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Without the gospel, we would be lost in our sin, worthy of all condemnation. Though we in our sin should have fear of God, we can know that through Christ there is no longer fear or condemnation, but love. And and this love encompasses all else. This gospel begins with our origins. God is the creator, and all else is created of everything he created, he made humans to be made in his image. Because God is a God of love, of reason, he has personhood, he knows, can be known, has morality, and shows that we can as well. It is through this we find dignity, sanctity, to all human life. Yet like God, we are also able to choose. Originally, we could choose obedience and life or disobedience in sin and death. We chose the latter and have continued to make that choice ever since. Because of this, our relationships with God, ourselves, each other, and the world are broken. We accrue a greater moral guilt before our God every day. Not a feeling of guilt, but true moral guilt, where we are all guilty before a righteous judge and worthy of judgment. God did not leave us in this state forever. Instead, He revealed Himself to us by His light and His word, which is His Son, Jesus Christ, Jesus lived, died, and rose again in time, space, history, and flesh. It is because of Jesus Christ we are healed from our wounds. It is through him we are redeemed from sins. The judgment we once deserved is no longer on our shoulders. And we are made right with our God through the propitiation of our Lord Jesus Christ. His victory in life over sin and death is our victory in life over sin and death. All that is required of us is obedience in two things. The first is repentance. We are to change the direction of our lives. We are not to live in whatever way we desire, but according to Jesus Christ in the Scriptures, which reveal to us who Jesus is and the will of God for us, walking in step with the Spirit of God in love. The second is faith in Christ. We are to recognize that it is not our deeds which save us but ju- from judgment, not our works which make us righteous, but the work of Jesus Christ on the cross, which saves us from sin, saves us from judgment, and makes us righteous before God. It is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, according to the Scriptures alone, for the glory of God alone we are saved. For those who are disobedient in these things, there is only judgment. There is no righteousness apart from Christ. There is no hope of salvation. Instead, any who remain disobedient will only find the wrath of a righteous God. For those who are obedient, there is unending peace with our God. We find we are victorious over sin through the power of the Holy Spirit within us. We are more than conquerors in Christ. We are co-heirs of an eternal kingdom where we will remain with our God forever in his steadfast love. Be encouraged to know the peace of God through Jesus Christ. That through him we no longer receive what we deserve. Instead, we receive grace, peace, and love from our God forever if we confess that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. So make this confession boldly, and live in the confession, knowing that those who do, those who love, will know the eternal and perfect love of God. Amen. Let us go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we thank you for your grace and for your mercy. We thank you for the perfect love that we find in Jesus Christ. There is no greater love than that which we find in him. No greater love that could be displayed for us to for us to partake of, for us to even live with. And it's because of this, Lord, we give you thanks. We give you thanks for your Son, and we give you thanks that you redeemed us, and that you change us and transform us according to your word. We thank you for this, Lord. And again, we give you praise and all honor and all glory. In your Son's name we pray. Amen. Please rise as we sing... Our second to final hymn, because we do have communion today. You may be seated. Before we partake of communion, um, it's traditional for us to take um, offering for our deaconate fund, and the deaconate fund is used to help those in our congregation and sometimes within our community who are in need. And so, if God is calling you today to give to the deacons, um, please heed the call. And to give to those who the deacons truly follow in God's steps in loving when they do give in need. Um, So before we do, let's just pray over the offering. Father, We do, again, thank you for your grace and for your mercy. And, Lord, we ask that the blessings that are given to the deacons and the deaconesses um, would be used for your glory and that they would be wise about where to spend it as they always are and that you would continue to give them wisdom in all things. We thank you, Lord. In your son's name we pray. Amen. Today we get to celebrate together in communion, Um, and communion is also known as the Eucharist, and it means a gift, and the gift that is given to us, I think, is best said by Martin Luther when he argued that through communion, Jesus promised to be there. Um, and even though we can't see him, as we learn in today's text, even, that God is invisible, we can know his presence and we can know the personal God who loves us. And so as we partake together as a community and remember and think on what Christ has done, remember to not forget, too, that he's with us. Remember that regardless of what the devil may tell you, when you partake of communion, Christ promised his presence. Um, And that gives us hope and assurance because this world does beat us down. This world does want to destroy us. But in Christ, we will overcome. And it's here that we can remember this. So let us pray over the bread. Father, we thank you for the blessing of your body. And we ask that Your broken body would be what we reflect on today, that we would remember that you did this for us so that we could know you and know your love through your Son, Jesus Christ, and what he has done. Let us never forget that it is through him that we find all assurance, all peace, all love, and that through his broken body, we are redeemed for our sins. Amen. Now we will read from 1 Corinthians. Paul writes, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Now we will bless the cup. Father, again we praise you for what you have done through Jesus Christ. And as we now partake of the elements and as we partake of the cup, we remember that this is your son's blood spilled for us. It's a remembrance of this, of what your son has done. And through his blood, we have a new covenant with you, a covenant which will never end a covenant which could never be broken, a covenant that will go on and on in unfathomable love for your people. Lord, let this cup remind us of this covenant. Remind us that we have a bond greater than all other bonds through your Son, Jesus Christ. We thank you. Amen. In the same way, also he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. And the final verse. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Please rise as we sing our final hymn.